welcome to Living in This Queer Body, a podcast about barriers to embodiment and how our collective body stories can bring us back to ourselves. I am so glad you're joining me again. Feels like it's been a while. Um, I'm adjusting to the every other week uh, podcast schedule, but I think it is working best for me right now um, with my schedule, and I hope that it is going to allow me to continue to sustainably create um, really quality episodes. So um, thanks for tuning in. And before we get to the episode, I, I really just have kind of one thing to talk about. Um, I had a really powerful and engaged group of folks show up for the first Living in This Queer Body virtual workshop. Um, what I really loved is that folks tuned in from all over and they really showed up like vulnerable and searching, seeking out queer community connection um, to support them in sorting through challenges and questions related to boundaries, which we realized we could talk about forever. Um, one participant sent me a lovely note, and I'm just going to read it to you, obviously with their permission. Um, they said, thank you so much for facilitating the space last night and asking such excellent questions. I enjoyed being with each person and engaging in these questions and searching with queer community. I'm taking away a bunch of new thoughts and feeling excited to get and stay curious about the overwhelm. I appreciate the spaces you're creating with the podcast and the way that those episodes offer me a connection and inspiration as I navigate my queer body onward. Okay, so that was really sweet. I just wanted to share that and um, onward indeed. Our next virtual workshop will take place on Tuesday, October 1st, from 7 to 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I hope to see some familiar and new faces. Uh, the topic, the specific topic, is going to be um, announced on Instagram um, in maybe a couple weeks, but um, it will involve all of the things that we as queer folks are probably um, very much in uh, shared community in terms of navigating. Um, I think it's probably going to involve um, sex and intimacy. Um, so to register, you can either DM me on Instagram or email me at livinginthisqueerbody at gmail.com. And all info will also be on my website, uh, livinginthisqueerbody.com. So I hope you enjoy this um, episode and keep the five-star reviews coming. It really helps folks find out about the show and the projects connected to it. Um, leave a review if you can. I've been getting some just lovely emails and messages on Instagram and I they're so meaningful and I thank you for doing that if some of you are willing to to put a um, review on iTunes I guess it's Apple Podcasts now um, that would be great as well so um, I had a very powerful conversation this week with T. Lee uh, they're another amazing tattoo doula um, much like Tamara Santabanez, who was our first um, interviewee. We 
talk a lot about bodies in this episode, in part because T and I um, share really similar experiences navigating chronic autoimmune health issues and gender, amongst many other things. Um, They currently provide a really cool experience that includes an astrological reading with a tattoo designed specifically based on your astrological chart. Um, Tilly is a queer tattooer that has been living in Brooklyn for the past seven years with a background in music, installation art, photography, and postpartum healing as a doula. T now concentrates on hand poke, tattooing, and storytelling. T co-owns their own interdisciplinary tattoo studio called Welcome Home with their business partner, Kelly Kikio. I hope you enjoy this episode and stay in touch. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Of course. Thank you so much. It's nice to have you. I'd like to start out each each episode with a question about sort of about your earliest memories of learning about what it meant to have a body or learning about what it meant for other people to tell you about your body, whatever comes to mind for you. Well, when I when I was a kid, I was obsessed with just wearing underwear and being naked all the time. I was like maybe three or four. And I was also obsessed with wearing uh, Mardi Gras beads around my neck whilst being topless as a child. And, you know, yeah, (laughs) of course, my parents thought it was hilarious. And um, I never understood why I wasn't able to go outside like that. Mm. And, you know, I kind of vaguely remember like my mom saying like oh well little girls have to put clothes on when they go outside and then I remember not understanding why like little boys didn't have to wear clothes and why they could just run around however they wanted and I think like in that moment I realized that there were like all of a sudden limitations in in my body and not not what it could do but like how it was perceived by people Mm -hmm. and um that for some reason gave my like four-year-old or three-year-old mind like a little clarity on, oh, I'm like trapped in this body and this is what I will have forever, you know, all of a sudden. So yeah, I think, I think that's my, my earliest memory of that. And there's so many pictures of me with the Mardi Gras beads around my neck still and it was good good times. (laughs) Did you have a sense from your it sounds like your mom was the person kind of trying to explain that to you but did you yeah. have a sense of what how she felt about that um how she felt really, about kind of restricting i don't know restricting maybe too strong of a word but kind of you know teaching you at such an early age as many parents do yeah. about a lot of really intense stuff that's kind of just implied yeah i think my mom, less so in her mind, it, it wasn't about restriction. It was more about protection. Yeah. And, you know, I think that in in her mind, everyone in the world was kind of bad, right? I think when you have a kid at first, you start to 
you see the world in a different way and you start worrying about all these things all of a sudden that you never really thought you'd have to worry about before. And, you know, my mom growing up, you know, I'm from a very conservative religious household. And I think that that had a lot to do with how she explained gender and gender roles and all that kind of stuff. And I think um, in her mind, it was always about protection. Um, and as are many, you know, conservative mothers, but they, they don't really realize that it's like, it's constriction more than, than protection. Mm-hmm. Did mm-hmm. that answer your question? Yeah, totally. Okay. What was your family's kind of religious? Very Baptist. Very Baptist. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, We bounced around between Baptist and evangelical churches. And, you know, I was a servant of God for many, many years, Mm -hmm. many years. Um, And that informed a lot of of how I saw my sexuality and my gender and you know, was, was horrifying when I started to realize about myself and just trying to convince myself that, you know, what, what was inside of me wasn't real. And, you know, it's very confusing, like many, you know, queers that grew up in religious families experience. It was very otherworldly. I definitely felt like I was two people at one time, Mm. um, you know, most of my adolescent life. Mm. Mm -hmm. What was the kind of outward acceptable version of you doing or presenting as? I never really presented as really anything. I think my mom always knew I was like that quote unquote tomboy or whatever. I hate that term, but you know, try to put me in bows and skirts and I would like literally rip them off minutes into her trying to clothe me at, at the age of three, you know, and she would dress me in pink and I just want to wear black and Um, I'd go outside and climb the trees and skin my knees and I rode horses and just, you know, I never was that girly girl that both her and my dad were really hoping for. Mm -hmm. Um, So the acceptable version was, you know, that version of me, but that went to church and believed in like the heteronormative way and said, yes, ma'am, yes, sir, to everybody and, you know, prayed many times a day, accepted Christ, baptized, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, And I didn't realize until I was maybe eight or nine that I felt differently than everyone around me um, inside. And I remember when that moment came, I had just accepted quote unquote Christ as my savior, which sounds fucking crazy as I'm like, as I talk about it, you know, I did it too. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I I mean, did. It's, it's something that so many of us do and it's just like this normal thing. And, you know, we're older and we're looking back and we're just like, Oh, holy shit. That was so fucked up. Um, but I remember being like, Oh, and I didn't have a term for it. I didn't know what gay was like, I didn't know. I didn't know any of that. Like no one had ever told me about it. And I, but I knew it was bad somehow. And I remember like having this singular thought in my mind and it was just based on attraction. It wasn't even based. I I wasn't aware of what I felt in my, as gender. It was just about sexuality. And I had this thought about like, you know, uh, like I guess a girl, you know, not a woman or anything and immediately backpedaled in my mind, like, holy shit, no way I got to run. And, um, from that moment on, I just, I really started to question 
my involvement in the church and religion and my mom. And, you know, since the age of like eight, I really have been working on listening to my inner voice and my inner person and not necessarily being the outer person that everyone wanted me to be. Mm -hmm. When we were kind of communicating before this interview, you, you said something that really struck me. You said, you know, that you were longing to be one of those alien kids who went beyond gender. There's something, I guess when, when I saw that, I was thinking, you know, how did you, how did you even know that there were like alien kids out there or you know what I mean like what was your it sounds like you grew up in a very kind of (laughs) um like very uh constricted conservative environment but I just wonder like do you remember anything that kind of gave you a sense or was it really just you know your own inner world I think it was a bit of both um you know as I mentioned I I rode horses growing up and my family, we, we grew up pretty poor, but my mom always scraped together money so that I could take horse lessons. And my horse instructor, her name is Carol. And I mean, I don't, this is never confirmed, but like, I assume she was a lesbian because she was like, rode hard, hung up, wet, which is fuck, you know? And I was obsessed with her as a kid. And she was like the first lesbian, quote unquote, that I'd ever really seen. And I just remember like, she just gave just her existence kind of gave me permission to listen to those parts of myself and having the relationship that I did with Carol and also being around these horses when you're around horses or at least when I was I didn't feel human you know I felt like I could they could see through my flesh into like what I actually was on the inside and I think like that was what at the time I didn't I don't know if I knew it was alien, but I just knew that I, I felt otherworldly and I didn't necessarily feel like I was trapped in this body. And, you know, that's why I still have such a strong connection to horses today. And they really just are a symbol of my freedom when it comes to my gender and everything outside of the restrictions of my body. And so I, I think if it wasn't for Carol and those horses, I'm, I probably <laughs> would be a lot different than I am today. But um, yeah, it, it was profound for me as, as a kid. And I never shared it really with anyone as a child, you know, didn't really understand it until I moved more into my, into my teens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How can you say a little bit about how you've been um, metabolizing all of that as a an adult, you know, like how you've been working through listening to that inner, more like inner wild alien yeah. part of yourself? Yeah. Well, I think I lost it for a long time. Mm-hmm. And when I was a kid, I had like a really intense connection to it. And, um, mm-hmm. and then through through my teens actually when I when I separated myself from religion and my innocence also started to fade as I moved more into like adolescence and early adulthood I totally lost that like mystical charming connection I had with that part of myself and all of a sudden I was trying to fit in in these like very conscious circles of people you know specifically when I was in my 20s I moved to Kansas City and you know at that point I understood okay I'm gay 
I know this, I'm going to act accordingly, you know, and, and I just, I kept trying to, I think maybe be something I wasn't. Um, and back then I didn't know what non-binary was. I didn't really understand a lot about gender. I just knew like you're gay or you're not kind of deal. And yeah, so I lost it for a long time. And then about two years ago, I was doing a breathwork class with um, Regina, who you interviewed at my studio at Welcome Home. And I was laying on the floor and we were looking up at the ceiling and I just saw like a horse run across the ceiling. And that's when boom, immediately, it just like came up in my mind all of a sudden. And I just, you know, was like, oh, cool. Yep. Nope. Don't have a gender. That's the thing now for me. And, you know, non-binary was definitely on my radar and was, you know, I, I knew about it. I just was so unsure if that's how I would really identified because I just didn't give my, myself permission to just let go and, and truly just be who I was. And when I had that vision or whatever you want to call it, I just immediately knew. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, now I'm going through my 30s as a different version of myself and it feels good. Mm. what feels what feels good about it for you like what have you noticed that even just in kind of small mundane ways like what have you yeah I just wake up feeling better about myself I'm less upset that I'm trapped in this body still kind of upsetting to have this like really curvy like super feminine body and I try to you know I do identify as femme and I I you know, because I'm also gender fluid, it's also like some days I'm like, fuck yeah, titties. And other days I'm just like, holy shit, I just want to be anywhere outside of this body. Mm -hmm. And um, since I let go of this like structure of gender, I feel that that um, disagreement that happens in my head between my subconscious and my consciousness is less argumentative. It's, It's more, okay, well, I can accept this and let's kind of just move through the day and see where this takes us. And taking gender out of everything is obviously for so many people less triggering. So it, yeah, it's, it's just been a bit easier to kind of live in this body, being free of this leash to society. Mm-hmm. How has that, you know, that kind of more expansive feeling that it, it sounds like has you re-remembered in a way with the horses and everything mm-hmm. you kind of re-remembered that there is a, a more expansive version of you. How has that, you, you know, you've, you've spoken publicly about some health issues that you've been dealing with lately. And um, I wonder how that, what has happened with the interaction between that kind of more expansive feeling and almost relief, you know, that you Mm -hmm. felt in, you know, identifying as non-binary and I imagine, you know, kind of really, yeah, experiencing relief around that and then experiencing also some really difficult feelings in your body as a result of health stuff. Yeah. I mean, when I first came out as non-binary, um, well, so as far as, so as far as my health issues, since I guess everyone listening has no clue, um, I suffer from endometriosis and I just got uh, diagnosed with adenomyosis and that is 
you know, has to do with your reproductive system and the way that your uterus sheds its lining. And um, I, I've had endometriosis since I can remember. And so that's always kind of been with me. And, you know, part of what had been so painful in my 20s was like menstruating, physically painful, but also very emotionally painful because, you know, I was in a very like, I was in a circle of a lot of like cis lesbians, you know, and, you know, they would talk about how excited they were to bleed. And like, I was such a formative and important part of them. And I just like, ugh, you know, I was just like, no, I don't want this. Like, this is really triggering for me. Um, but I didn't know how to express that or how to have words for that. And so I kind of just took like that physical pain and that mental pain and just like shoved it away and just lived with it. And then for the past year, um, luckily I haven't had a period due to the contraceptive that I'm on for the pain in my endometriosis. And so um, that has been an incredible experience, not having to, to deal with that you know, monthly reminder coming up. Um, but my, my body pain associated with my chronic illness is very much still there and present, but at least I don't have to be triggered by, you know, mm. my menstrual cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I think I might have gone off topic and I'm not sure where I'm going. I'm so sorry. It's sort of a, I guess maybe kind of a mess in some ways at least yeah. I've it's something that you and I both share I actually remember when I was you know when you were giving me a tattoo and I was deep in uh kind of really confronting how much endometriosis had was impacting my life and impacting yeah. my professional life and um I remember I don't remember exactly but I remember a conversation we had about it and you know, you were very curious about what was happening with me because <laughs> I, I think that you it, you related to some of it, but it hadn't quite, you know, yeah. manifested in, in an explicit way in your life. And I, I guess, you know, it seems when I say a mess, it just feels like I also, you know, really, I think it's very complicated to identify um, as non-binary or trans or, you know, non as not cis and yeah and to have such like this aggressively um kind of quote unquote female oriented or i you know the discourse around your reproductive health is very yeah can be very cis i mean i think there are a lot of people that are trying to push against that right now and yeah with the abortion ban and all of that which has been i think really wonderful but yeah, I think that's what why it feels like a mess to me, at least. You know, I'm speaking for myself, but <laughs> I mean, yeah, absolutely. And I think I didn't seek treatment for I don't know the two decades I've been living with this because of the reality of being, you know, uh, or just having to talk so much about gender, and also going to the doctor and saying like, "Hey, I have this thing. <laughs> I'm, uh, it's crippling, and I need you to take care of me." And then having doctor after doctor being like, no, that's totally normal. No, that's totally normal. You know, mm-hmm. and I think I was so curious about what you were going through because I just never knew if I should really speak up like loud about it and not and not leave the doctor's office with someone being like, no, you're fine. So when I would have clients come in and, and share with me their experience with endometriosis, I would just like cling on to them and cling on to you because I was just like, oh my God, I'm normal. You know, like this isn't, it's not just me and I'm you know, 
queer people all over experience this and it just felt Mm -hmm. so much less isolating hearing you talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not, it's not something that I also struggled to kind of talk about it because it felt like it, um, in some ways talking about it really gendered me in a way that just, I was uncomfortable, but also, um, I mean, I've talked about this on the podcast before, but, you know, it was a similar feeling to, you know, being pregnant and people making a lot of assumptions about me. Obviously, I was capable of becoming pregnant and and physically. And so I, you know, but there are a lot of assumptions that people make about um, about you. And it felt somewhat like exposing of of that inner like something about my inner world was being exposed. Um, I don't know what it's been like for you, but, um, and then also kind of feeling like, you know, uh, a lack of queer voices that are, are kind of talking about in general, and this is something we've talked about on the podcast, but like in general talking about chronic pain and, um, so it's all, that's, that's the mess, I guess. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it is such a huge mess and, You know, also just the fact that having chronic pain in general as a queer person, you're often just all, you know, dismissed. And Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, a little different in the sense that I am very like femme presenting. So I, you know, you would never know I was queer, right? Like, so I have so much privilege walking into a doctor's office and kind of talking about my pain in that way. And, um, you know, I'm a little bit more believed, but something I hear continuously from my clients who are not as like passing is that their pain is like, you know, pretty much always completely dismissed. And I think that's also why you don't hear a lot of queer people with uteruses uh, maybe talking about that pain because, you know, sometimes the queer community can also be dismissive. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important when talking about how the world outside of the community is dismissive and how some of those similar things go on in our community and Mm -hmm. in an understanding way, but also just like we got to talk about that so that it continues to break and so that people can speak up about this kind of stuff. And um, yeah, I don't, I just, I, I try, especially on, um, social media to talk about my pain a lot and to encourage other people to share me their stories with their pain because I just want to make chronic illness normal, right? Because when I started having clients coming in and they were talking about their chronic pain was exactly similar to mine, that feeling was so freeing and I just <laughs> felt like I'd been hugged for the first time in my life. And mm-hmm. I, I just desperately want other people who haven't had that connection with people to feel that Mm -hmm. um so genuinely I want that for them Mm -hmm. so like thank also thank you for this having this podcast because that's also so much of what this this work is for and Mm. yeah I don't know I just on a tangent but (laughs) no I I hear you and I mean I think something something that has to be talked about when when talking about chronic pain or, you know, being diagnosed with an illness that doesn't have a cure or, you know, kind of within the context of that, I'm curious how you've, and I'm sure listeners would be interested in kind of understanding how you've made choices around taking care of yourself, whatever that means as, you know, 
a tattoo artist and facilitator of this of welcome home you know a space that you you know you're curating and all that so yeah how has that been for you well um taking care of myself is something that is actually really new to me and I mean like past six months new I if you ascribe to astrology I'm a cancer um Libra moon Aquarian rising so my my life is taking care of other people um and i i thought my whole life that i was um giving back to myself by taking care of other people and i thought that that's what filled my well up and it's only in the past 6 months when i when i kind of mentally made the connection that, that taking care of people was harming me in some ways when i made that mental connection my my body literally literally fell apart and it's like my mind gave my body permission all of a sudden to um feel all the things that i had been ignoring by taking care of other people and taking care of my business and i had a lot of anxiety i have a business partner and so i had a lot of anxiety about letting my business partner down and um you know endometriosis uh has affected the way that I work, and especially when I was menstruating, I would have to take so much time off and cancel on clients last minute and, you know, really kind of fucked up my workflow. And so um, in the past year of not menstruating and then six months of that, realizing about caring and self-care, yeah, uh, it's funny how when you just <laughs> realize that helping people is actually toxic for you in that moment, it's like such an oxymoronic thing, but um, I realized that I just, I had to take a break from work and um, I had to let a lot of people down, including myself. And I knew that if I didn't do that, I, I, would, I wouldn't be living. You know, I felt like I was trapped in this prison and I just like could not get out. Um, and simultaneously trapped in a prison that was like flooding and you're swimming and you're trying not to drown. And it's just, you know, it was a lot. And so in the past six months, my chronic pain has gotten so much worse. And I'm, I've tried to be more um, open about that on social media and um, trying to just facilitate conversations. Uh, and I've had so many people message me just being like, I had no idea that that was a symptom of endometriosis. Or um, I had no idea what adenomyosis is. Most people don't even know what that is. And it's been rewarding because I could still focus on myself, but in this very small way, still help people. Um, and that feels more manageable to me. And that feels more of a balance. Mm -hmm. um, and so as that balance continues to even itself out, my health is starting to get a little bit better. Uh, I'm scheduled for you know, laparoscopic surgery in July. Um, and so I'm hoping, you know, at the end of the summer, I can go back to working full time and maybe have a better understanding of how to take care of myself so that I can really take care of other people. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about, you know, the kind of intense um, psychic and also like physicality of what you actually do for a job. I mean, the, you're talking about more broadly as taking care of people and you, you do, you're <laughs> such a, you are such a cancer and a very like a caring space holder 
you are that and I've, I've experienced it as one of your clients, but I, I wonder if what you've kind of taken under consideration around some of that in terms of how you think about like what your body actually might need or what um, might feel good for you or what you've been noticing feels good and healing and helpful for you in kind of your daily life now that you're not working as full time. Yeah. Well, right as my pain level started to get worse and as all these things kind of clicked for me, like all of these things kind of came together at one time. And one of these other components that met me at this point in my life was I started taking um, medication for my mental health. And uh, that at first I was like, this is not an act of self-care. This is like not dealing with my shit. This is just putting a bandaid on it. And then on the other side of it, once the medication evened out, I realized like, wow, this was like, I gave myself permission to like actually live my life. Oh my God. Um, and in doing that, um, you know, it gave me permission to holistically kind of look at, at my life without this crippling anxiety, this, you know, of fear of my chronic pain and, you know, um, I, I'm going to keep saying the word prison, but I feel like I was prisoner to just so many aspects of my life, not only just living in this body that I didn't want to be in, but all the things that I created mentally for myself because I was not addressing that connection. Um, and caring for other people was a way to avoid that for me. And for me, there's a lot of astrological shifts going on at that time that were just like begging me to slow down. and. Um, so through slowing down and being on medication, also like what's really cool, and I think I may be getting away from your question, but for the first time since becoming, or uh, not becoming, but coming out as non-binary, um, I wasn't scared of myself uh, at all, or my body, or the scary things going on with it, or the pain. Um, I just am not scared anymore. And I don't know why. Like, obviously, like, <laughs> Lexapro isn't just going to, like, come in and take my fear away. Um, but, you know, I've, I've been in therapy on and off for, for 20 years, and I think this is just what I needed in order to really he hear and, and all the work that I've done to really take place. And so, yeah, I, I feel great not living in fear of my body and anything it's capable of, um, regardless of if it's horrific pain or if it's, you know, birthing a baby, having a baby, whatever. I no longer let that, like, gender kind of dictate my fear. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. I guess it, it just makes me think about you know, a lot of what I end up t asking people about or, you know, the, the kind of provocation with this podcast is, is questioning what are the barriers to embodiment as, and the goal is not to say, and the end result is, is like, you know, we're embodied all the time. I think that yeah. <laughs> what you're speaking about is really interesting because in some ways what you're talking about is the way in which painful experiences or kind of overwhelmingly painful experiences can can bring us into our bodies you know like mm -hmm. experiences of trauma can bring us right into our body in yes. a way that you know we've been like dissociated <laughs> we've been out 
out in like the stratosphere for months on end and then you know where something happens or you know so I think there there are lots of different ways and um, I definitely with this podcast don't want to convey a message that is I think really prevalent in kind of like the healing and wellness world where it's like well I do yoga and I do all these things nothing wrong with yoga I do yoga too but like (laughs) no I do yoga I eat this way I do this I do that and and I feel like I'm embodied all the time you know yeah I think that that's really it's really important to talk about kind of how pain can be transformative or forces us into maybe forces but you know it's very confronting this kind of idea of embodiment. Yeah, and I I mean I'm still very much learning about embodiment and you know I I don't eat the way that I should considering my my endo like really needs me to eat a certain way and um you know I I don't take care of myself in many many ways but the way I look at it is I am um you know I'm taking care of myself for the first time ever in 31 years and so I'm not going to be able to be good at it all of a sudden. And so I'm just, you know, uh, trying to take it like truly one day at a time. And um, also self-care right now looks like for me, if I wake up and I can't see a client, you know, I know they've waited for maybe two months, three months, but I might have to cancel our appointment, you know, and, and the old me would have been like, no way you're going into work. I don't care what you feel like. And um, the real me, uh, not the new me, I feel like it's the real me is like, nope, okay, you're going to take care of yourself. And if you're hurting, um, you need to give your per- yourself permission to feel that and permission to hurt and permission to hold space for yourself because you've been holding space for other people your whole life. Um, you deserve a day. And I think so many people who have experienced chronic illness, trauma like you're talking about, um, you know, a large percentage of people on this planet who have experienced that are queer. And so I think queer people also, you know, um, or at least the queer people I know are, are inherently nurturing and inherently sacrifice themselves for other people. And that's, that is just kind of a part of growing up to people as it were, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I hope more of us can come to this moment of learning embodiment and learning embodiment through self-care and giving ourselves permission to put ourselves first and in that yeah I don't, I don't know I just the journey I'm on feels really special and really great and I just want anyone else who's struggled with trauma and pain and being a prisoner of fear to be able to experience the relief from that in some ways like you were saying even if the relief is giving yourself permission to feel your physical pain because you're having yeah. a bad pain day you know it's like that yeah is the relief um in a way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's a really challenging, um, there's some like challenging mental gymnastics that have to take place in order to, to allow that to happen. A hundred percent. Get used to it or, you know. And I don't, I personally don't know if I could do it without my medication. Hmm. Really. I don't know for me personally, because I've experienced chronic pain for so long and it's never happened. So it's just like, it's hard because during this one specific week in my life, so many components of my life changed. So I don't know which one of those components is really responsible for what, but the, you know, they're a team, I guess they just all work together. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like they're different parts of yourself 
that needed to be cared for and yeah maybe the medication is kind of caring for a part of yourself that is kind of like okay I'm taken care of now I, I can move <laughs> on to like being supportive of this part you know what I mean I yeah. really think that way sometimes and try to keep that in mind for myself because when we become like you I can really relate to what you're saying about becoming so identified with your productivity and your ability Mm -hmm. to be a caretaker that, you know, if you have to cancel on a client, you, it's almost as if you have, you as a total totality have failed, you know, but if you kind of piece it apart, you're really succeeding on the self-care front. Yeah. And like, you know, if I don't take care of myself, my job's not going to be here. So yep. It's going to go. And also like bringing, unfortunately bringing capitalism into that it's just like those those don't go hand in hand and so it's so hard to break out of that mindset and to really give yourself permission to slow down and stop working and stop your productivity um, regardless of who you're letting down because you have you know who knows 60 more years to live on this planet you know one fucking week one day whatever is shouldn't dictate how you're going to live the rest of your life in pain or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. No, I get that. So I guess I want to make sure I ask you one more question and then, and then we'll sort of hear a little bit more about how people can find you. Um, Okay. So if you could go back um, and say something to a younger part of yourself, what might that part, or younger version of yourself need need to hear. Oh man, um, I'm like there's like thousands of things. Mm. Um, honestly, it's just like don't. I know this is so cliche, but just don't worry. You know, I was so anxious as a child, um, and I and and to be a kid be a kid, you know, really, you, you will be taken care of, even if it's you're taking care of yourself, and um, you can still take care of yourself and experience the joys of, and the freedom of being a, a child, mm. um, and yeah, I think that alone would maybe change how I experienced living in my body. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. How can people find you if they want to find out more about you and your life and your work? Sure. I'm a tattooer, and so you can find my body of work on both my website and my Instagram. My Instagram is um, at T Lee, and it's T-E-A-L-E-I-G-H. And my website is tlee.com. and I co-own a studio called Welcome Home. That's welcomehome.studio, um, both on the web and on Instagram. And you can find my work and other people I work with there. Cool. Yeah, definitely check it out. Okay. So thank you, T. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Asher. This was so fun. Cool. Cool.